upon marking song number 655, as Cale has asked us to, to certainly do together, I would ask that you get your Bible. And so as we step through some of the questions that have been asked of us this evening, we will take a look at various passages in the Word of God and, and ask what it is that the Word of God has to say about the questions that have been asked. As always, we're so thankful to be able to come together in worship, to assemble as we are tonight, to do so recognizing that many citizens in the Lord's kingdom for ages long gone by have thrilled at the thought of coming together to encourage each other to worship the God that they love. And certainly you and I have the privilege of continuing that even tonight. As you already see from the wall behind me, it's one of our additional sessions of questions and answers this evening. As you know, we tend to do this from time to time. And as always, the questions are prompted by, by what you have asked. I don't include my own questions, but always those that you have directed toward me, either putting them in the box out in the foyer or sometimes asking them in a more of a direct way. But in every instance, it's questions that someone here has asked. And on that slide, I would ask you to notice that the lesson text that was read just a moment ago takes us to Luke 2.46. There Jesus asked questions. Now, he was age 12, admittedly, but he nonetheless asked questions of those that were doctors of the law, and thus it was very appropriate to attempt to learn that which was the will of God, and that's what you and I are trying to do certainly this evening. With all of that having been said, we have a few questions to come before us tonight. Some of the questions themselves are worded in a rather, in a rather brief way, and it will be my attempt to expound or explain in some cases so that we understand, I think, what the thrust of the question is. The opening question is this one. Did giants descend through Noah's seed? Now, we have been discussing giants to some extent in some of the Bible studies on Sunday morning because Goliath, for example, is described as a very large man. And we encountered him in 1 Samuel 17, for example. But as a part of that discussion, we noted that giants were mentioned in a number of other places in the Word of God as well. But there on occasion are those that you may hear that will in fact raise questions about some of the issues surrounding a question like this one. May I again note the wording of it. Did giants descend through Noah's seed? Now you and I tend to think of Noah, for example, as a typical man who was involved in the construction of the ark. And yet, as such, we read about giants both before and after the flood, and thus may it well be noted that our answer is probably a, a reasonably direct one, but let's in fact build a few concepts connected to it. First of all, in Genesis 6 verse 4, we have the first reference in the Word of God to the existence of these large human beings. Now, the wording in the King James translation there is, there were giants in the earth. Now, that was before the flood of Noah's day. So, there were giants. Now, you might ask, what does that word mean? It's a bit interesting, and I've asked you to notice that the Hebrew word that's translated giants in that location is actually the word nephilim, N-E-P-H-I-L-I-M. And it is true that that word can be used in reference to those that are recognized as being mighty warriors. So not necessarily large in size, but just an effective person in battle. We might ask, was the word used that way in this context? 
the only other place, or at least another place, wherein that word occurs is Numbers 13, verse 33. Now there, we are better easily told what's involved. You might recall the children of Israel were journeying toward the land of promise, the land of Canaan, and Moses had sent out twelve spies. Those spies looked through the land, and upon their return, they made some comments. We are as grasshoppers in their sight. There are Nephilim there, is what they said. So clearly the Nephilim there was a reference to some pretty good-sized people. We might well call them giants. It would certainly be the case that since the word was used that way in Numbers 13, and the same man that wrote Numbers 13 wrote Genesis 6 verse 4. Moses wrote both of them. It would certainly seem reasonable to suppose that that reference in Genesis 6 is also to a very large person. We call it a giant. So it would seem that we can conclude there were giants before Noah's flood. And you and I have just read passages that indicated there were giants after Noah's flood. So we had giants existent in both of these regions in time. The only last thing to notice... In the flood, of course, only eight human beings were saved aboard the ark. All of those on the land died. God expressly said in Genesis 7, All that's on land, both beast and man, shall die. And therefore, that was certainly the case. And more than once in the New Testament, it highlighted only eight souls were saved by the water. We read that in 1 Peter 3.20, as well as 2 Peter 2 verse 5. Thus, we are led now to easily observe that all those other giants, whatever they may have been, they died out in the flood. Aboard the ark, we had eight souls saved, and since there were giants after the flood, they must have descended through Noah and thus through one of his sons. Now, all that being said, I would ask that you perhaps at least note one other observation. Isn't it a fascinating thing to reflect on what is possible in the DNA of man? So here was Noah and his son. So literally everyone upon earth today is descended through Noah somehow. All of us. Now that being noted, consider for just a moment the great variety of peoples on this planet. You have Eskimos that are extremely light-skinned, for example, but... You have those that live near the equator, very dark-skinned. All of us, regardless of the distinction in our appearances, sometimes great distinctions in hairstyles and colors, the shapes of the eyes and all kinds of other things, and yet genetically, all of it came through just the marvelous wonder of what was available, of course, through Noah, because we've all descended through him. As an aside, I would ask that we at least note it's true that we all descended from Adam and Eve. That's fair to say. But yet, if you contemplate it, there was a great explosion or a great uh, wideness or breadth as the human population expanded after the days of Adam. But then at the days of Noah, it narrowed back to just descendants through one man, namely Noah. Therefore, one can sometimes ask, what about the number of individuals on earth today? Would it be more feasible to count it attached back to Noah, or to count it attached back to Adam. Those who have done number studies have interestingly enough found, though they may not have been great Bible believers, that in fact the actual chronology 
far better fits the day to trace back to Noah. And you and I would agree from the Bible that's to be expected. With question one finished, we've answered giants thus did descend through Noah's seed. Question number two. This question is, reads as follows. Were ferocious dinosaurs mean before the fall in Eden? Isn't that a good question? Could I invite you to notice, ponder the thought, we know that some dinosaurs are very large and we know that they might well have been on occasion aggressive. And given the size of a man versus the size of a dinosaur, there would have been little competition, at least in, in that direct regard. But the question's a good one, a very good one. Were those original dinosaurs mean? Were they aggressive, ferocious? Let's turn to the Word of God and see what we can at least appreciate. I would ask that you note first some of the features about dinosaurs themselves. First of all, there's no question that dinosaurs existed. Their fossils have been discovered on all seven continents. There is no question that they once lived in vast numbers. Now, it would seem that they no longer live. We don't know of any anywhere. And therefore, it appears they've become extinct. But the question still is to be asked, what about those original ones? Were, were they aggressive? Were they ferocious? Were they mean? Were they fierce? One of the first things to keep in mind about the dinosaurs is, by definition, the word references a land-dwelling, air-breathing creature. So they didn't live in the water. I know the book of Job makes reference to Leviathan, who did dwell in the water, and though that might be some kind of a sea monster, it wouldn't technically be a dinosaur by the way in which that word is identified. But it is to be noted that in God's creative activity, we will recall that Days 1 through 5 had brought about the creation as the book of Genesis details it. But when we arrive at day 6, first we recall the creation of the land-dwelling creatures that would have included dinosaurs. But also that day, God created the human family, mankind. He created Adam and Eve as well. No wonder in light of those things we could thus say that dinosaurs and man coexisted. They walked this planet at the same time. There were people that saw dinosaurs. They saw them in the flesh. I realize full well that the particular theories of evolution and other matters like that would say that's preposterous. They would claim no human ever saw a dinosaur. But those who take the Word of God at face value would say that men did see them. About the middle of that slide... We then know by virtue of the question I asked that it is true some animals can be rather aggressive. A grizzly bear, when provoked, can easily kill a man. Sometimes even not so strongly provoked, it could in fact do great damage. But not only grizzly bears, we could mention tigers and lions and a host of others who certainly have the strength and the capability and the capacity to in fact take the life of mankind. But I would say not only them. I chose to list two final ones which are in the snake family. Maybe you've never heard of these, and I'm thankful they don't live around here. The black mamba is widely regarded as the single most aggressive snake in the world. Even unprovoked, it will attack. Again, I'm thankful 
it lives only in Africa. In addition, the carpet viper is also widely known as an extremely aggressive snake. Again, one which does not need to be provoked in order to attack. So the question is a very fair one, and perhaps not only indicative of dinosaurs, but even the larger category of the animal family. In general, were animals ferocious before the fall in Eden? Could it be said that animals, in fact, were fierce and aggressive? And did Adam and Eve have to worry about this, for instance, while they lived in Eden? The question's extremely good. The best that we can do, it would seem to me, is piece together a few passages of Scripture. And the first one that I'm going to invite you to notice is, in the closing verses of Genesis chapter 1, God made the following statements to Adam and to Eve. In verse 28, God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So at that point, what God said to Adam and Eve is that to them, they were awarded the dominion over every creature that would have included the dinosaurs and all the other creatures, including snakes and so forth. And yet in light of all of it, it still doesn't directly answer a question admittedly. Because to have dominion and to see those creatures subdued might not directly say whether they were ferocious or mean or not. It would seem we might need to look a little bit further. Genesis chapter 9. In verse 2 of that chapter, we do encounter a statement that does seem to have bearing on the question we've been asked. Genesis 9, verse 2. I'll start reading in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now we'll pause at that point to say, we are now well over 1,600 years after the creation. So again, that's over a millennium and a half. And yet after the flood, which now has come to an end, the ark has settled on Mount Ararat, and Noah and his family have, in fact, uh, disbanded the ark. It is now that God says to them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. And now verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered." I find it interesting that God Himself mentions the word fear and He mentions the word dread. And He seems to do so as if that had not necessarily been strongly the case before. Again, the waters of the flood are gone. God has purged the earth from the nature of that continual sinfulness that had been descriptive of it in the days of Noah. And now after they exit the ark... God says, the dread and the fear of you shall be upon them. He was speaking of the animals. And I simply worded it the way you can see on the slide. It appears from that passage there was a fundamental change that took place in animals' responsiveness to mankind and the human consideration concerning the animals after the flood. Notice it didn't seem to happen after the, after the sin in Eden it was after the flood. Now, more than that, I don't know what I can say. I don't know any other passages that, that give us any additional information. 
But I did ask you to notice how the words dread and fear are sometimes used in the Old Testament. They do carry the sense that you and I expect that they do. So the animals became skittish with regard to man. They don't like being around man for the most case. They flee, they're scared. It seems as if that was a part of what was embedded and at least declared about their nature at that time. So it would seem, in light of the earlier way the question was worded, were they ferocious in Eden? I suspect not. Like this happened a long time after Eden. Maybe things were far more peaceful. Things were far more of the situation very much different than the kind of dread and fear that seems to be the natural instinct that they have today. On to question three. Question number three is worded like this. How many children did King Saul have? Now we've been studying again on the Sunday morning Bible classes the nature of King Saul. The question is asked, do we know anything about the number of his children and any of the features or specifics that are involved with them? First of all, we do know the name of Saul's wife. We're told in 1 Samuel 14.50 that her name was Ahinoam. We are also told her father's name, Ahamaaz. Now beyond that, to my knowledge, he is not mentioned anymore in the Word of God. But as far as Ahinoam, as Saul's wife, she bore him four sons, and their names are given to us. In fact, they're given to us in two different places. In 1 Chronicles 8.33 and 1 Chronicles 9.39, they're, they're listed in both those verses. And the names, as you can see, are these. Jonathan was the eldest. And then the next oldest son was Malkishua. The third oldest was Abinadab. The fourth was Eshbaal. I would ask that you ponder especially the name of that last one. The last four letters remind you of that Canaanite deity, that is to say something connected to idolatry. Does that indicate that Saul's wife was not one we'd recognize as a believer in the God of heaven? I don't know. But surely the name makes you wonder. Now, maybe it's beyond that. We could at least offer this. There was a time when you realize she also bore Saul two daughters. The name of the elder was Merib, the name of the younger, Michael. Now we will learn in our next study, I think on Sunday morning, that Michael at least had images. And so maybe she, like her mother, may well not have been a firm believer in all that was the matter of God. But now we've come to six children, four boys and two girls. But note, Saul had a concubine as well. We don't encounter her much in the Word of God, but in 2 Samuel 21, she is named as Rizpah. So we do know that, she had a, that he had a concubine, and she bore him two boys, Armoni and Mephibosheth. Now, it's that latter one that perhaps occupies a question in your mind. You're probably familiar with the Mephibosheth, better known in the Old Testament. It's not this one. There were two Mephibosheths, this one and the other one. The other one you might remember was the son of Jonathan. So it would seem that Jonathan named his son after the Mephibosheth that would have been his half-brother. That being said, you might remember the Mephibosheth that's better known to us was lame in his feet. He was crippled. That wasn't true apparently of this one. So that being said, we have a total of eight children. 
two girls, six boys. On to question four. The fourth question asks a rather direct one this way. Can a Christian belong to a social group such as the Masonic Lodge? The Masonic Lodge. So this, perhaps by its very nature, is going to bring a number of matters to bear. Let's step through this somewhat directly and also somewhat slowly. As far as a social organization, a social group, the question was asked, can a Christian belong to a social group? And then a particular example is given. Let's take the broader case first. We know there are many social groups that are alive and well upon the planet on which we live. And I've just listed a very small number that might be listed. A person might be a member of a certain athletic team or some social group that pursues some athletic activity. And we're each rather familiar with that. But you can also list academic ones like a science club or maybe a chess club or a club of some other particular thrust along that line. There are parent-teachers organizations that many parents are parts of. One might be a member of a musical organization where you're learning to play an instrument along with others that are also learning or being tutored in the same way. You could list the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, or maybe any number of others. As you give thought to any of those organizations, or at least many others that might be listed, isn't it fair to say that an organization might have a mission, and it might have a particular goal or motivation that would bring about attitudes or skills or aptitudes that would be perfectly consistent with that which the Bible would otherwise have no problem with? There isn't anything wrong with learning to play chess. There isn't anything wrong with, say, learning to play basketball or being a part of a team so long as that group or team doesn't endorse something that stands opposed to what the Bible teaches. To be a part of an organization like that, apparently no issue or problem with it. But on that slide, isn't it also true that it is entirely possible for an organization to stand for something and to strongly endorse something that does stand opposed to what God stands for. And it's that kind of situation that certainly poses the issue or the problem. And so, for example, in cases like that, one would need to be very careful to understand what this club stands for. What is it that they promote? What is it that they approve? Because after all, if you associate with it, then it's clear you're approving of whatever the same thing is. You are standing for it just as surely as the rest are. And so one might then look with care at, say, the Rotary Club or the Boy Scouts of America. There was a time, for example, the Boy Scouts, I suppose, was one of the most wholesome organizations that there was, insisting on the development of skills that would make you a better man and a better father and a better citizen. But as you now read what the Boy Scouts stand for and what they wholeheartedly promote, they promote ungodliness in the direct form of LBGTQ and homosexuality. It is a strong part of what they stand for. May I say now it would be a very difficult thing to stand in deference to that, given that, that, that that's what they expect and that's what their name now associates to almost immediately. 
and the same is true of the Girl Scouts. But to say it that way is to say that any organization is one that would have to be carefully considered to know whether or not it stands for what's consistent with what God teaches. Because isn't it true, it's absolutely wrong for any Christian to have association with and to bring oneself in compliance to that which does not have consistency with the Word of God. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness in the words of Ephesians 5.11. Paul said in Romans 1.32, if you associate with it, you're partaker of it. That means you would be giving your voice in support of it. Maybe 2 John verses 9 through 11 at least poses for us a pattern of consideration, something that's at least worthy of our thought at this time. Allow me to just read those three verses. 2 John beginning in verse number 9. As John wrote to Kyria the elect lady, he told her this. Whosoever transgresseth and goeth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So if you bid Godspeed to these that again stand opposed to the Word of God, you're reckoned by the God of heaven as at least a supporter, one who is a partaker of that kind of thing. As you and I would well anticipate, this certainly urges a very strong consideration as to what's involved in aligning ourselves with certain social organizations. We must read their mission statement. Read with care. What do they stand for? What do they promote? What is it that they will demand of those who pledge to be a part of this? If it's not consistent with the Bible, we must have nothing to do with it, at least by allowing ourselves to be a member of it. As we transition to the next slide, a few more thoughts then might be this. The question specifically mentioned, Freemasonry. Now maybe we know relatively little on the whole about Freemasonry. There was a time, I suspect, it was quite a bit more popular than it is today. As nearly as I can understand it, the, the number of those that are in Freemasonry has declined rather notably over the last two to three decades. So again, it may well be we hear so much less about it now than we might have just a very few years ago. But still, it's a great question. Can a person be a faithful Christian and a member of a Masonic Lodge at the same time? Well, in light of our earlier statement, we surely would have to ask, so what does the Mason stand for? What is it that is upheld? What is it that in fact is the matter of being a Mason? Well, first of all, there's quite a bit of information that is not exactly true, and sometimes these are just suspicions. But there are some who think that the Masons trace their origin all the way back to the days of Solomon. That strongly appears not to be true. They do not trace the nature of their existence and their being and that which they stand for back to the Old Testament days of King Solomon. What does appear to be true, they do strongly trace their origin back to around the 13th or perhaps the 14th century. Now, I admit... That's a good six or seven hundred years ago, so it's a rather old organization. 
they often, in fact, are quick to say they're the oldest fraternal organization on earth. I mean, that may well be so. But still, all that merely brings us. What do they do? Research can sometimes be challenging in relation to Freemasonry because if you go to the library and you try to check out the books, you typically will find that though the card catalog lists the existence of these books, when you go to check it out, you'll find the book's not there. Interesting. But it does still lead us to say there's quite a bit of information that's otherwise still available. As far as what they assert as their mission, it is to make their members, which originally were men, but in recent years I now understand they do allow women to join. But the goal is to make this a better person, to make you a better husband or a better father or a better wife or a better mother. And certainly that by itself is a noteworthy goal. But it accomplishes it by virtue of contributions are made. So the members give, and then that money is used to carry out acts in benevolence, or direct services on behalf of other things. And by the way, there are rather respective services which it's expected that your attendance will be noted. Now furthermore, there are respected leaders and there are certain names and delegations and distinctions that go with them. They wear certain garments and certain clothing. And they make appearances in which there are certain signals and symbols which are utilized and by and large, again, those have significances and meanings. At the very least, you could say their direct teachings concerning all of that armament or the garb, the robes that go with it. But I would say that to say all of that is to say that the whole idea certainly bears a strong relationship to the thrust of the church. There's contributions in the church. There are regular meetings that are expected to be attended. There's teachings, and there's, of course, a number of things that otherwise are very strongly mimicked by the behavior of this fraternal organization. But not only that, notice the view of God appears to be very problematic in the, in the Masonic Lodge. Freemasonry's view of God is not consistent with the Bible. And there's a great problem in that. A problem so much so that they view God in a deistic sense. And by that I mean he basically started his universe and he sits at a distance and watches it. No interaction. But you and I know differently than that. In fact, we pray to him under the expectation that he will hear and that things are changed and that things are done by his activeness in the universe currently. So that view is certainly problematic. Not only that. I've asked you to notice that those titles I mentioned earlier, can you imagine referring to a particular man as some kind of very specialized title that carries with it a whole set of ideas about greatness or otherwise occupation of position or that is which is to be honored in a very serious way? Well, again, may I ask that Jesus did remind us in Matthew 23 that again, don't call anybody your father. Now I realize they might not use the name father, but there are all kinds of others, grand potentate, and many other kinds of selections or choices. Various elements of knighthood are noted. That certainly seems a bit problematic in that those as you and I regard in terms of Christianity, we recognize we're all brothers and sisters. 
we have great concern and care for one another. And we are to recognize we submit ourselves to one another. Can a person be a Christian and also a Freemason? There seems to be some issues in, 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 that are not consistent so far. Maybe there's one final thing I would ask you to notice. What takes place in some of the particular meetings of the Masonic Lodges? Now certainly because of the secrecy that's there, those that aren't Freemasons aren't allowed to come in. But yet for those who have been Freemasons and have left that organization, sometimes they give reports of it and sometimes the descriptions have a strong ring that makes you think about what sounds a bit like worship. Now, I don't know that they would say that it's worship, but it certainly has a ring that makes it sound like it. There are certain readings that take place. There are certain prayers that are uttered. There are certain other things that often take place. I'll just simply say that in Galatians 5 verse 20, Paul uses a particular word. That word is this. I've asked you to notice definition on the slide. That list, of course, is the well-known list we often call the works of the flesh. And allow me to read it. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I've told you before, as I have also told you in time past." that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I know we've all reflected much on the elements of that list because of the seriousness of it. Being guilty of any one of these is enough to keep you out of heaven. And maybe we do give a fair amount of interest to the earlier elements of the list, and certainly there isn't anything improper about that. But some of the latter ones can be very challenging. And they can be such that we may well have problems with them even today. I wonder what heresies are. What is it that Paul meant when he made reference to heresies in Galatians 5 verse 20? The definition is at the bottom of the slide. A separatist group characterized by loyalty to a certain school of thought. Now, I would suggest that doesn't just directly point to Freemasonry, but it would point to any group. We must never submit ourselves at a social group to a group whose philosophy is of a separatist character, which would in fact cause us to be distinct from and yet not consistent with the nature of the Word of God. At the very least, we've raised some issues tonight that would cause one to think very carefully and very seriously before being a member of a Masonic Lodge. Certainly, I think that it would be something that should cause a great deal of mental anguish. And in light of the Word of God, the safer course of action, it would seem, would be to recognize the work that would otherwise be done through that lodge can be done through the church. The church will make you a better husband, a better father, a better wife or mother. Your contributions can be used for benevolence. Everything that otherwise the lodge is supposed to do the church can do it better. So why would you want to be a member of the Lodge? Wouldn't it be far better to use your talents, your time in something you know is pleasing to the Lord, pleasing to the God of heaven because He has placed His stamp of approval on it? It is with that that we've closed our questions for the night. 
the four questions I asked were very, very good ones, as they always seem to be. And I would say that there are more questions that are yet to be handled, and we'll tackle them soon in yet another message. But as we close this lesson tonight, we certainly can assert the value of questions and answers. And can we not also highlight the beauty of the answers contained in the Word of God? The Word of God has all the answers that we need. Now, it may not have all the answers we want, but it has all the answers we, that we need. And I'm thankful that we have the capability of opening it and allowing it to direct our thinking. And sometimes it raises additional questions. And I'll use this time to say, if what we've studied tonight perhaps has raised more questions in your mind, feel free to write them down, put them in that box. Maybe with additional study, we can make more statements and make additional discussions about the things that we've considered this evening. And like I said, the additional questions we have yet waiting will direct us to consider some more fascinating things. Tonight, as always, though, we'd like to extend the Lord's invitation. If there's anyone in this assembly tonight who, upon examination of your life, has come to recognize that your soul at this point is in jeopardy, that you have not been a faithful Christian, for example. Though you once were, you have allowed trains of thought, You've allowed particular considerations to begin to lead you down a pathway, and you can already tell it's not good, and the destination will be even worse. It's time to change now. We all know that as human beings, we often become steeped in habit and ritual, and if we go too far, it can be very, very difficult, even more difficult to change than what it would be tonight. And so, we'd like to extend that invitation on the Lord's behalf. If you would wish to come and make confession of error, make repentance of that, we'd be delighted to pray on your behalf. If you've never become a Christian and you'd like to become a blessed member of the body of Christ, you want to be able to wear the name Christian. There's no finer name at all to wear than that one. It will be a safeguarding thing that will keep you through life and lead you to all eternity in a good place called heaven if you'll be faithful. To become a Christian, believe in the Lord, won't you? Repent of your sins, confess His matchless name and be baptized. And tonight we could assist you and we'd be happy to do it. Brother Cale has chosen a song of encouragement and if we could at this point be of help in some way, won't you let us know the way we can while together we stand and sing. <laughs>